especially on last uh, minute notice. Have you ever heard the phrase that cleanliness is next to godliness? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Have you ever heard that phrase? That is such a well-known phrase that a lot of people uh, think that uh, it's somewhere in the Bible. Uh, but the news flash is, it's not. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, God helps those who help themselves? Again, another commonly known, commonly used phrase. I've used it myself. But technically, is that verse in the Bible? No. Now, I understand about if a man will not work, you know, let him not eat. Uh, but that's, as one guy brought out on the internet, he said, look, actually, I would take issue with that because there's a lot of times when God helps those who can't help themselves. And I know what we mean by that. But the point is that there are some things that we think, there's some things we say, there's some things that we bandy around that are not in the Scriptures, even though sometimes we think they are. And we have to be diligent students of the Bible. We have to have uh, the spirit of the Bereans to search the Scriptures so that we know the difference between what are just commonly received sayings and what are indeed God's Word. You know, some of those things that we say or things that we believe and attribute to the Bible are neither here nor there, are kind of minor. But there are some that are pretty major, that are pretty significant. And they can have a real big impact. And that's one of the things we want to talk about. In fact, the main thing we want to talk about this hour is what the Bible doesn't say about race. Well, not, not, not what it does say, but what doesn't it say? Because there are a lot of things that some people believe the Bible says on race, and it just isn't so. It's just not there. And we got to be careful that we ourselves are vigilant and have not let some of these things creep into our thinking. Or if we were maybe taught some of these things, that we recognize the difference between these things and God's Word. And that we constantly work on renewing our minds so that our views and our thoughts and our beliefs line up with the Scriptures and not necessarily what we were taught. The first thing that the Bible doesn't say about race is this. The Bible does not say, do not teach or preach on racism. The Bible does not say, don't teach or preach on racism. I know you're saying, oh, come on, Kevin, that, that's a straw man. You preachers always do that. You erect a straw man, knock him down, and think you've accomplished somebody. Nobody says that. Nobody believes that. You're wrong. <laughs> I have heard it with my own ears. I was at a congregation where I approached the preacher to say that I wanted to preach on race. You know what the response was? We, we, we don't need that here. We, we, we don't need that here. We, we don't have any problems here. Why, why do you want to preach on that? You're going to stir something up. We, we don't need that. Don't, don't teach about that. We're fine. We haven't had any issues. And you start preaching and teaching, and you're going to stir up some trouble. It's an interesting response to a proposal to teach what the Word of God says about any subject, racism or otherwise. We don't need that here. We're good. I wonder, would that same preacher say, oh, we don't need any teaching on baptism, man. We got that down. We've heard that a thousand times. We don't have any problems. If you teach on baptism, we're going to stir up some problems. People will stop believing in baptism. I wonder if they, the same thing would have been said about 
the work of the church and the authority of the scriptures. I mean, we don't need that. We've heard too much of that. We don't have any issues. Everybody here believes in the authority of the scriptures and the work of the church as authorized in scripture. So don't teach about that. You're just going to stir up trouble. There are people, more importantly, there are brethren, who believe strongly that we should not preach and we should not teach about race. And the Bible doesn't say that. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 27. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 27. Acts the 20th chapter, verses 26 through 27. This is Paul addressing the Ephesian elders. He makes an interesting statement. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. What a wonderful statement for a preacher of the gospel to be able to say. To say, look, no one can blame their spiritual deficiencies. No one can blame their spiritual shortcomings. If if on judgment day, people who have heard my preaching don't make it to heaven, no one can credibly point the finger at me and blame me. He didn't preach this. He didn't teach that. He didn't warn me. He He says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. No one can lay their spiritual failures at my feet. How can you say that? Verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's how he could say that. Paul says, you know what? I have preached and I have taught everything that God has to say to you. I didn't leave anything out. I didn't neglect anything. Whatever the counsel, revealed counsel of God is, I preached on it. And based on that, because I can say that, I can also say, I'm not guilty of the blood of any man. Every preacher needs to be able to say that. I preach the entire. We don't, we don't want people preaching parts of the Bible, the parts of the Bible they agree with, the parts of the Bible they're more familiar with, the parts of the Bible that are easier. No, every preacher, every teacher, your obligation is to teach the entire counsel of God. So on this question of whether or not the Bible teaches that we should not preach and teach on race, here's the question. Is racism, teaching on racism, within the scope of of the whole counsel of God? That's the question. If we establish that racism as a problem, racism as an attitude, racism as an attitude towards other people, if that is contained within the whole revealed counsel of God, then the truth is not only may we teach and preach on racism, we must teach and preach on racism. So that's the question. Is racism within the whole counsel of God. With that being said, let's look at some passages. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Matthew chapter 22, 37 through 40. We're investigating the question, is racism within the whole counsel of God, the whole revealed counsel of God? And we're going to look at Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus was asked this question, what is the great commandment in the law. The response, verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the first and great commandment. Now listen, verse 39. And the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then listen to verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus, teacher, tell us, what is the great commandment in the law? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's number one. That's the most important. But the second is like unto it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, you know what? You could go back and the entirety, the whole scope, everything that is taught within the old law can be summarized based on those two commandments. Think about it. There's nothing in the Old Testament said that doesn't fall under either you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul, or you shall love your neighbor as yourself, or both. And might I suggest the same is true of the New Testament. Try it. You won't find anything in the New Testament that cannot be summarized with love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the question. Love your neighbor as yourself. Can I do that? Now remember, it's a command, right? It's what the Lord says. Can I do that if I'm prejudiced against you because of the color of your skin? Can I do that if I'm racist in my beliefs and my actions? Can I do that if I believe that people who look like me are superior to people who look like you? Is that consistent with you shall love your neighbor as yourself? And to ask the question is to answer it. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. And here's the point, people. We, we sometimes brush these things aside and think, well, that's not really what's critically important in the Scriptures. And, you know, we really want to talk more about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And we want to talk about the authorized work of the church and uh, the uh, qualifications of elders. And those are the real solid things. And here's Jesus that says the entire the old law can be summarized in part by you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we've just established that having these racist views, having these, this prejudice is inconsistent with that, is a violation of that. And let me ask this question if we're wondering about how serious these things are. If we don't do what God says, what is it? It's sin. First John 3, 4, it's transgression of law. Now let's go further. If that sin is not covered in the blood of Jesus when we stand before Jesus as the judge, what's our outcome? Hellfire. Let's be serious about it. I'm not singling out. That's true of any sin. Sins not covered by the blood of Jesus will condemn our souls to hell. Now, is this serious? Is this an important topic? Is this something we need to think about and preach about and teach about? Something that could cause me to lose my soul in hell? Romans 13, 8 through 10. Turn there. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. The Bible doesn't say we shouldn't teach and preach about racism. The Bible does not say that. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Romans, the 13th chapter, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, You shall not covet, and if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sound familiar? Look at verse 10. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What do I owe you? What do you owe me? What do we owe one another? The Bible says, God says, we owe one another love. We must love one another. That's a commandment. If we don't love one another, we have sinned. We have transgressed God's law. Let's don't sugarcoat it. And he says that, you know, if you look at the commandments, not committing adultery, not committing murder, not bearing false witness, really, he's, he's illustrating for us Matthew 22, 37 through 40. What is at the root of that? I don't love my neighbor. I don't love my neighbor enough to put his or her interests above my own. And I'm going to selfishly take your life, take your possessions, take your wife. He says, no, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't do these things. If you have that fundamental disposition, that fundamental heart, then that takes care of those portions of the Ten Commandments. And then he says, you know what? Here's a good litmus test for love. You want to know if you love your brother, love your sister, love people the way you should. He says, you know what love does not do? It doesn't do any harm to a neighbor. It doesn't do any harm to a neighbor. You know, growing up, I heard this phrase, and I know it was well-intentioned, and I understand what it was trying to accomplish, but let's analyze it for a second. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Sounds catching, right? Sounds pretty good. Here's my question. Is that true? Is that true? I want to suggest to you, friends, that's one of the greatest lies the devil's ever told Do not say that words don't hurt. Words can hurt. I've seen people hear words, hear words in their formative years, and they are struggling with the repercussions of those words, struggling with the consciousness of those words, struggling with the indoctrination of those words decades after those words were uttered. Do not say Words. Words are powerful. James 3 tells us that. What we say to one another, how we say it, the terminology, it has an impact. And here is the Apostle Paul saying, don't do harm. Why? Because you love people. If I love you, and I'm aware that certain terminology, the certain words, the certain phrases are going to hurt you, am I going to use that? And somebody said, well, what if I don't know? Get educated. Find out. Become aware. You you owe that. The last thing I want to do is to say something to you, say something about you, throw out a joke, throw out an observation that hurts you, that bothers you. I remember growing up, my mom, she certainly was scarred by Jim Crow segregation. No questions. And she was scarred by some of the language that she heard over the years. And I, I can remember times I'd be, you know, in the living room and maybe a movie like Mississippi Burning is coming on. I said, come on, Mom, let's, let's, let's watch this. And she said, why do I want to watch that? I lived through that. I don't want to watch that. And, and, and she was particularly incensed, and she did a lot of teaching on this, about what I'll say, the N-word. You're talking about a word that hurts. That word scarred her. There's no question about it. And and I have to admit that I went through a a time when I was in college where I used the N-word to other black people. 
It's a term of endearment. That's the way it's explained. And, and, and before we get to the, the main point, let me say this. I, I do think there's some legitimacy to that argument from this standpoint. Language is not static. Language is not static. You can ask any linguist, most conservative, most liberal, language is not static. What does that mean? Language evolves. Words that used to mean something 100 years from now are going to mean something else. If you don't believe that, all I've got to ask you is, what does the word gay mean? 100 years ago, there'd be a much different answer in what it means today, right? Words change. But here's the problem. As I was going through my transformation and thinking this through, I started thinking more about mom, and mom, in her viewpoint, that word was so hurtful, it didn't matter whether it came out of the mouth of a white person or a black person, it hurt, period. Did not want to hear that, period. Why? What had gone on in her formative years? That word was dirty. And I thought to myself, you know what? My mom's not the only person who feels that way. There are a lot of folks who feel that way. I say, you know what, regardless of whatever arguments can be made to legitimize that, I ain't doing it. Excuse the bad English. I quit using the word. Why? Because words hurt, folks. So we just have to be, we don't want to. I, I think if people thought about, oh, it doesn't matter, you're being thin-skinned. Oh, come on, grow up. It's not a big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. And, and, and be honest, it may not be on race, but if I get to know you enough, there's some words I can use that set you off. Husbands and wives, unfortunately, sometimes know that. They know what buttons to push. Couple phrases, couple words, boom. So don't act like you're immune to this. We, we react to words. We're designed that way. Fortunately, we react to the Word of God, hopefully the way we should. Words are powerful. God spoke into existence all the universe with what? Words. But we need to be careful as we interact with each other. We don't want to do any harm. We wouldn't want to leave somebody out. We wouldn't want to discriminate against somebody and create an issue where they're like, well, why did they do that? Why wasn't I invited? Why wasn't I part of that? Is it because this? Love does no harm to a neighbor. Look at Philippians 2, 1 through 5. We're asking the question, is racism within the scope of the counsel of God that Paul said he did not shun to declare to his audiences? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Philippians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 5. The Bible does not say we should not preach and teach on racism. Philippians 2, 1 through 5. The Bible says this, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for, the, for their own interests, or his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, do not consider it robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Bible says that I have an obligation as I go through my daily life, as I make decisions about how I'm going to interact with people, how I'm going to spend my time. I can't just think about number one. You know, we hear that. Just think about number one. Take care of number one. The Bible says I have a biblical responsibility 
to look out for your interests as I go through life and interact with you. In other words, I got to think about how are my actions, how are my words, how are my thoughts and beliefs, how are they going to affect you? I have to think about that. Now, now some people, and I understand the frustration, they get really upset sometimes about this notion of political correctness. This idea that, oh, I can't say this, I can't say that, and man, we just can't communicate anymore. I understand that frustration at some level, but if I'm looking out for your best interests, I kind of have to be careful about what I say, right? I mean, don't think about being politically correct. How about being biblically correct? How about conducting yourself in such a way that you don't offend a brother or sister in Christ? Isn't that a good goal if you love the person? If you're seeking out their interests? How about talking in such a way that you're not going to shut any doors of opportunity? We'll talk about this a little bit more the next hour, especially when it comes to preaching the gospel. I mean, wouldn't you hate if, if you said something carelessly, ignorantly, that offended a whole group of people, and from that point forward, you're dead to them? Don't come to me about the gospel, because I remember what you said. You, you don't. And, and friends, there are things like that. There are some things I've heard brethren say, I thought, wow. Even the people of the world got that right. <laughs> that, that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. We've we got to get that right. Why? Because we're trying to save souls. And if you can't get the fundamentals right there, people are going to say, I don't want to hear anything you have to say. The messenger is part of the message, whether we like it or not. We've got to look out, not for number one, not just myself. I've got to be aware. And you know what? What that causes us to do, we need to learn about each other. We need to learn about each other. There was a young lady who was working at our firm for a while. And she was of uh, uh, Hispanic heritage. And we, we struck up a good friendship. And a lot of that friendship, and I was very honest with her, I said, look, I want to know about Hispanic culture. I don't know. I'm ignorant. And, and I want to know so I don't say something. I don't do something. I don't convey something. I don't write something that turns off people of Hispanic descent. So fill me in on something. And she, had all, and she loved it. She loved talking. But she was glad somebody was interested in her culture. We need to do those things. Find out why. Because I want to be effective in interpersonal communications. I want to be effective in spreading the gospel. I want to be effective with my coworkers. I want to be effective with my fellow classmates. And the last thing I want to do is bring any shame or reproach on Christ because of my ignorance. Can we all admit that we're ignorant of some things? People don't like that. I was in a trial recently. And uh, one of the experts got upset because my partner was cross-examining him. Oh, you're just trying to lead me down the path to show my ignorance. Well, if you don't know, you are ignorant of that thing. Doesn't mean you don't know anything, but I, I dare say that there are subjects that we're all ignorant. We just don't know. We haven't studied it. We haven't experienced it. We haven't practiced it. It's not in the purview of our job. So there are some things we're ignorant of. It, it, the sin is not being ignorant. It's being content with the ignorance. <laughs> Do something about it. Get to know why. I want to be the most effective ambassador in Christ I can be. Again, we'll talk more about that next hour. But is, are these things, this is the question, is racism, is that within the scope of the whole counsel of God? And if I haven't convinced you yet, I, I got you on this one, Matthew 7, 12. You just can't overcome this one. Matthew 7, 12. Love this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Bible says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. What do we call this? It's the golden rule, right? Whatever I want people to do to me, that's what I need to do to them. However I want people to treat me, that's how I need to treat others. However I want people to speak to me, that's how I speak to others. Fundamental. Fundamental truth. Does it apply to this subject? Absolutely. Do you want to be discriminated against on the basis of your race? 
Do you want to be discriminated against on the basis of your ethnicity? Do you want to be discriminated against on the basis of the color of your skin? Answer to all those should be no. Then don't do it to other people. Plain and simple. We're done. We're done. Not literally, but we're done on that subject. And that's why sometimes I get frustrated. Let me say this. I love my dad. And I love my brother. But both my dad and my brother, whom I cherish and love, they're human beings. Which means they're fallible. Which means sometimes they don't do the right thing. Just like Kevin Clark sometimes doesn't do the right thing. And as much as I love my father, as much as I love my brother, if they do wrong, guess what? It's wrong. It doesn't make any difference. He's related to me. Oh, he brought me up. He taught me everything I know and I owe everything. All of which is true. But on this issue, he's wrong. I hear too often when these kind of things are talked about. Well, Kevin, you got to understand the times. You got to understand the times. You got to understand the day and age. Things were different then. Kevin, you just got to understand. And, and my response is 2,000 years before the times, Jesus wrote Matthew 7 12. Don't give me that. Don't give me that. This is, this is, these are basics, fundamental. Do you want people to discriminate against you? Then don't do it. That's a fundamental truth. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to get that. Let's stop making excuses. Wrong is wrong. It doesn't matter who did it. <laughs> and I'm not trying to sit in condemnation of your great-grandparents and all that. That's not my job. But please don't try to justify the indefensible. Don't do that. If it's wrong, it's wrong, right? The Bible's clear. That's one of the things I love about the Bible. We learn these wonderful things about these great heroes of faith. But you know what? God was very clear when those heroes of faith sinned and they did wrong. And God didn't cover it up, and God didn't justify it, and God didn't rationalize it. It's all out there. It's one of the things that t- testifies to the inspiration of the Bible. If men had been writing on their own, they would have had these heroes that had no perfections, never fail. God's like, no, nope, I'm going to show everything, warts and all. But they're still by faith men of mind or women of mind. So we've got to be careful, folks. Is this subject racism within the scope of the whole counsel of God? Absolutely. So should we teach and preach about it? Absolutely. The Bible doesn't teach that we shouldn't. Second point. The Bible does not teach that black people in this country were enslaved as a result of the curse on Ham. Have you heard that? I've heard that. I've read that. What are you talking about, Kevin? The curse on Ham. Go back to Genesis 9, 18 through 27. Let's look at it. Black people in this country. The Bible doesn't say that black people in this country were enslaved because of the curse on Ham. Genesis 9, 18 through 27. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. That's our first clue that something interesting is there. You know, wait a minute, he just talked about the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth. And he didn't talk about who was the son of Shem. He didn't talk about who was the son of Japheth. But for some reason he pointed out that Ham was the father of Canaan. Let's keep reading. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the water, or the wine, and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, here we go again, Ham, the father of Canaan. Why break up the story to make that point? There must be something significant. It's the second time they've told us Ham is the father of Canaan. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers, or took his two brothers, uh, or told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backwards. 
and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from the wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be who? Ham. No. It says, Cursed be Canaan. But, 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 but Ham was the brother who did the problematic thing. I mean, it talked about the three brothers, Ham, Saul, Noah's nakedness, he, and he didn't go and do anything about it, didn't do what the two brothers did, uh, uh, Shem and Japheth. He went and told the other brothers. And so he's the one that did wrong. It said Noah woke, and he realized what his younger son, that's not Canaan, that's Ham. Why does it say Canaan? Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant, may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So the first point I want to make is, again, the Bible doesn't say that black people in this country were enslaved because of the curse on Ham. The first point is, it wasn't a curse on Ham, right? I mean, the Bible's clear about that. You can say what you want. I don't understand. I don't know why. But the, it said the curse is on Canaan. And the significance of that is this. Look at Genesis 10.6. Genesis 10.6. Genesis 10, 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. So Ham had four sons. And the curse was on Ham. No. The curse was on Put. No. The curse was on Mizraim. No. The curse was on Cush. Uh, 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 no. The curse was on Canaan. Now, what's Mizraim? Mizraim, the legal scholars say that's Egypt. Where's that at? Continent of Africa. More interesting, what's Cush? The legal scholars are a little uncertain, but they think it's some nation, some African nation that is south of Egypt. Where's that at? African continent. Ever heard of Sub Saharan? That's black folks. In fact, the word Cush means black. Now, who was the curse on? Was it on Cush? Was it on Mizraim? The two people, the descendants of which populated the continent of Africa? Nope. Nope. It was on Canaan. Now watch this. Look over to Joshua 6, 16.10. Joshua 16.10. Joshua 16.10. The Bible says, And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day, and listen to this, and have become forced Laborers. Hold that. Let's go over to uh, Joshua 17, 12 through 13. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put what? The Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. And then remember that and turn over to Judges 128. Judges 128. Judges 128. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. What do all three of those verses say? All three of those verses say that the Canaanites were enslaved by the children of Israel. Ephraimites are children of Israel. Children of Manasseh, children of Israel. Now think about that. Children of Israel, who are they descendants of? Shem, Semitic peoples, right? Go back to that again. Genesis 9, it talked about Shem would enslave Canaan. Don't we see that in Joshua 16.10, Joshua 17.12-13, and Judges 1.28? So we got a fulfillment of that. We, we don't need this, oh, black people are in there. So, no, they're not there. <laughs> That's not what the Bible says. So let's don't say that. And when we hear that, let's challenge people. Look, study, be careful, be accurate about what the Word of God says. A third uh, thing the Bible doesn't say. 
This may shake some people up a little bit. The Bible does not justify American slavery. Say that again. The Bible does not justify American slavery. And why is that so important? Here's why it's important. And you've seen it, you've heard it. When liberal critics of the Scriptures, or liberal critics of those who abide by the Scriptures and teach the Scriptures, when they want to uh, basically destroy our credibility, what are the first two things they say? Oh, yes, you guys study the Bible. You go by the Bible. You mean that book that oppresses women and legitimizes slavery? Is that the book that you want to tell me about? And instantly, boom, the conversation's over. Because who wants to subscribe to a book that oppresses women and justifies American slavery? We're done. Boom. That's what they think. But there's a problem with that. The Bible doesn't justify American slavery. And I want to emphasize American slavery. Look at 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 10. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verses 6 through 10. The Bible says, from which some have strayed having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know, listen to this, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing that the law is not made uh, for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. If there is any other thing that is what? Contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was, which was committed to my trust. So we have a list of things in 9 and 10 that are what? They are contrary to sound doctrine. So whether you know the identity and what is referred to by all those things in the list. One thing you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, whatever's in that list is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, I don't know about you, I think God's trying to tell us that's not good. Now, years ago, I remember reading New King James Version, that's what I just read to you. And I started reading this, this phrase, kidnappers. I thought, that's kind of a strange term to throw in there. I mean, I think of kidnappers, I think of people being carjacked or kids being stolen from the mall. And, you know, that, that's, that's what I think about kidnapping. Those things are terrible and we see way too much of it. But I thought, you know, I, I probably ought to dig a little bit deeper and see, is that what is meant by this term kidnappers? And so I began looking at what the other translations and what some of the scholars had to say. Listen to see if this is enlightening in any way. King James Version, kidnappers. Men stealers. NIV, kidnappers, slave traders. New Living Translation, kidnappers, slave traders. Strong's, an enslaver as bringing men to his feet. Ralph Earl's word meanings in the New Testament, men stealers refers to slave traders or kidnappers. Johnson's notes in the New Testament, those who stole men and sold them into slavery. And there's more where that came from. So what does that mean? Kidnappers talking about slave trade. That's wrong. It's what contrary to sound doctrine. Now here's a question. How did American slavery get started? Slave trade. So, so what you're telling me is if people had done what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, there never would have been slavery in this country. Not the way that it happened historically. Because what? How did it get started? The slave trade. I mean, folks, that's basic. 
That's irrefutable. He says it's contrary to sound doctrine. Now, sometimes I'll talk to people and, and they'll say, well, you, you know that there were some black people, there were some African people who were involved in the slave trade. As if you're going to get credit for me for that. They're wrong, too. <laughs> so, oh, 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 black people were involved. It's, that slavery is fine. No, it's contrary to sound doctrine. It doesn't matter if you were black or white or whatever color. If you sold, you kidnapped men, you steal men and sell them into slavery, it's contrary to sound doctrine. And that's American slavery. I don't know how you slice and dice it other than that. Study that. Don't take my word for it, but study that. Fourth thing. Fourth thing the Bible doesn't say. The Bible does not prohibit interracial marriages. The Bible does not prohibit that. And you say, ah, Kevin, it's 2019. Nobody believes that. <laughs> Nobody says that. Nobody thinks that. You're wrong. You're wrong. Heard it with my own ears. There are people who believe that the Bible, I remember I was, when I was growing up, I was in grade school, there was a student in front of me, Lisa Glenn, and sometimes we, we just chat about different things, and somehow this subject came up, I can't remember the context, but she said, yeah, she's like, yeah, my parents have always taught me, my church always taught me that it's wrong for the races to get married to each other. That's just, and, and it wasn't some profound thing, it wasn't said mean-spirited, she was always nice to me, and we had a good conversation. I mean, to her it was nothing more than saying, yeah, I like the New England Patriots, okay, yeah, yeah that's the way I was taught, you know, that, that's wrong. And there are a lot, and there are brethren, there are brethren who believe that. Sometimes I, I like to, if I, if I want to test and have a barometer of how, how far we've come on race, here's my question. How would you feel if your daughter married a black man? How would you feel if your son married a black woman? Or vice versa? Wait a minute. Uh, 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 no, 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 I'm, I'm just asking. Because when you start stumbling and fumbling, I'm like, well, what's, what's the problem? I just ask a simple question. What is the Bible? Now, it's based on a misinterpretation of verses like Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. Turn over there. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. Based on a misinterpretation. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. The Bible says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor shall mercy them, verse 3, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their, their, their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn, listen to verse 6 or 4, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Uh, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And so people take that and say, see, he said, don't make marriages with these other people. Right there, anti-miscegenation. You know what that means, right? That's, it, no race mixing. No race mixing. We had that uh, in the Alabama Constitution until the year 2000. And I remember that because, you know, we moved here in 99, so I've been here about a year, and they had a vote on it. And the good news is the vote was, do we take out the anti-miscegenation language from the Alabama Constitution? The good news is it won, it passed, it's gone, took out. The bad news is 40% of the people wanted to keep it. And I told Jack, I said, hey, we got to move. 
We got to move. Forty percent of the people in Alabama want to keep this anti-race mission, which is illegal, unconstitutional, uncommonly silly, and immoral and wrong. It's crazy. But we stand. Uh, and I will say this. A lot of times people vote against things just because they don't want to add to the Constitution. They may not know what it meant. So I understand that. But still, it's pretty high for me. But notice we're here. It, did, it said this. First of all, to whom was it directed? The children of Israel. And what was the prohibition against? Seven identified groups of people. The people in the land of Canaan. Now, if it's about race mixing, guess what? It's under-inclusive. Because it doesn't cover everybody. It's just these seven nations. But did you see in the text what the concern was? The concern was these people don't know the true God. And they're worshiping false gods. And I don't want you caught up in that. That was the concern. It wasn't race mixing. It was idolatry. That's why in Matthew 1.5 we see Ruth, the Moabite woman, mentioned in the lineage of Christ. And you remember when she's talking to Naomi, what does she say? She said, I want your people to be my people. And get this, I want your God to be my God. No problem then. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6 doesn't come into play. And Bob brought out, we don't have time to do it now, Numbers 12, 1 through 10, where uh, Aaron and, 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 and Miriam jumped on Moses because he married an Ethiopian woman. And God said, don't you dare talk about Moses. Don't you dare do that. Ever heard of Timothy? Timothy's mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. So, no, it's not about race mixing. It was about idolatry. Now, somebody said, well, Kevin, you've got to understand. I just, I just have a personal preference for you know, one race or the other. I just think those people look better. And I just, that's, just, that's what I'm attracted to. Okay, let, let's, let's play with that for a second. Personal preference, all right. So if it's a personal preference, right? It's just like, hey, uh, I like blue, you like yellow. You know, just personal preference. Do you teach that to your kids? Teach this personal preference and it's going to be taught to your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. Hey, personal preferences are just that, personal, personal. Let me give you an example. What if I say, Blake, I better not ever see you hanging out with a blonde-haired girl. I, 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 don't, I don't want you to be around them. You know how they are. And I don't want you dating any blonde-haired girls. And I certainly don't want you marrying any blonde-haired girls. You know how blonde-haired girls are. You know, they're lazy and, and, and they're no, no good for nothing and always in shifty and into something and don't know anything. You know about blonde-headed girls. This just don't get into that. Now, folks, we would reject that outright. That's not a personal preference. That's a problem. You got a problem. I mean, that's not a personal preference. If, if you happen to think somebody looks better than others, like newsflash. Folks, they're beautiful people in all races. Come on now. Come on. If you're going to tell me that, that, that Halle Berry and Michelle Obama, uh, they're not beautiful. May I suggest to you Dr. Wiley Fagan? He's my ophthalmologist. And, and he will take care of that problem. And please let him know that I sent you his way so I can get a discount next time I annual exam. Come on, folks. We know better than that. A personal preference, just like, look, personally, I love bacon. I love bacon. I think bacon is one of the best tasting meats ever, ever in the history of mankind. And I, I'm not trying to force my son, Blake, who doesn't eat bacon. Well, actually, to be honest, I probably am. But, but, you know, it's okay if he doesn't like bacon. It's okay. It's a personal preference. But I don't teach my personal preference. Now, let me say this, because I got in trouble once I was preaching this, and a mother came up to me after and said, you know, Kevin, after you said all that about blonde-haired girls, I got a blonde-haired girl. She's like, why didn't he like blonde-haired girls? <laughs> so, for, for all the blonde-headed girls and blonde-headed women, I have nothing against blonde-headed people. That was just used for purposes of illustration. But the point is, folks, is the Bible doesn't say anything about that. And we ought not say anything about that. We don't want to lose credibility. You know, uh, it's not about politics. It's not about social engineering. It's not about making a statement. 
It's about, you know, I fell in love with a person. And that person happened to have a different skin color. Is there anything wrong with that? No. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. So if you've got that personal preference of I don't want to date this race and don't want to be around, that's your personal preference. Leave God out of it. God has no place in that. So those are some things for you to think about. Some things the Bible doesn't say about race. And, and let me say this. Don't take what I said uh, at face value. I want you to study these things. Hit the scriptures that I, I cited. Become convinced yourself. And if so, let's talk about these things. And let's try to challenge these things. When we hear things like that, they're not right. Don't let it slide. Just Hey, have you really read the scriptures on that? Scriptures don't say that. If you want to believe, that's fine. But again, as I say, leave God out of it. What the Bible doesn't say about race. Thank you for your time and for your attention.